Psalm 127 will be our beginning text. I'm just kind of waiting for everybody to get in. Not I have just now 10 o'clock. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started this morning. Lord, we help us to appreciate, in a very real sense, not just acknowledge intellectually your sovereign control over all things, uh, your direct intervention in the affairs of the world, and we thank you for our country and the time in history in which we live. We pray your merciful blessing upon us as a nation, that you would save us not just spiritually, but nationally. And uh, we pray that we would have a good understanding of history and the way that things have worked. And uh, so we pray your blessing and help, uh, not just upon our Sunday school time, but upon the life of our church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Psalm 127 is uh, the text that I want to read this morning. Again, we're doing more of a historical a survey than a, than a biblical one at the moment. Uh, Psalm 127, a song of degrees for Solomon, or a song of ascents really is the idea. Uh, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. <clears throat> Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are, the, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gates. <clears throat> in our historical kind of pilgrimage, I want to just take today, and it is going to be a very brief uh, survey, I want to take today and talk to us about uh, America's first <clears throat> Great Awakening, um, which we call collectively the Great Awakening or the First Great Awakening, but is actually a series of localized revivals uh, throughout the uh, throughout the American colonies, predominantly located in New England, but having effect up and down the eastern seaboard. That um, <clears throat> goes from between about the mid 1720s through the Declaration of Independence. Um, the heyday of the revivals um, are going to be in New England in the 1730s and the 1740s, but the revival actually has some origins in 1726, and it continues again right up until the revival. <clears throat> uh, before I get into that exactly, I want to just kind of go back and recover a little bit of colonial history and the, some of the religious influences that are going to have both an impact and going to be impacted by this revival. <clears throat> it's about a 125-year window of time of establishing all of the American colonies, Jamestown, 1607, uh, Georgia, 1733, so about a 125-year window 
um, in putting all of the various colonies together um, and getting them established as, as colonies of the crown of England. That's what they all are in those days. Uh, some of them have no established church, which means no church that the government oversees um, and controls. And, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. Establishment in those days in the colonies that had it was viewed as a positive, uh, not necessarily a negative. Um, but Delaware, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Georgia, and Pennsylvania did not have established churches. Um, and again, that doesn't mean they were not filled with religious people. It just meant that the government had not designated one church to be the recipient of legal protections uh, through, through the civil courts. Some of the colonies have as their established church the Church of England. <clears throat> this is going to be Virginia, New York, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, which means that if you are Anglican in that colony, you have the legal protections, uh, the government legal protections extend to religious matters. And then ultimately, because, and this is kind of a, not entirely off track, it really comes into play when we start to talk about the war for independence or the revolution, however you care to frame it, um, uh, because one of the rumors that was being spread throughout the colonies was that England intended to take a bishop from the Church of England and send him to the colonies, and he would just deal, put everybody under the umbrella of the Church of England. There's no evidence on England's side that they ever intended to do that. <clears throat> but if you belong to the Church of England, whether it was in the colonies or on in England, then ultimately you answer to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and, and then ultimately to the, to the King of England, who is the official head of the church. And some of those are that have established churches <clears throat> are congregational in nature, and this is going to be like Massachusetts and um, <clears throat> Connecticut. They're, they're going to be um, congregational um, in nature. And, and these, again, are the Puritans, and the Puritans are people who are still willing to be a part of the Church of England if the Church of England can be rid of all of its corrupting Roman Catholic influences. Um, so there is a sense in, in which, in the, in the defense of the Puritans, they're, they're in a little bit of a difficult place um, because they are not intrinsically opposed to the Church of England or to the established church. Um, so they're not really trying to be rebellious against the church, but they cannot support the church. And since there are so few of them, and since they tend to be so very far apart geographically, uh, they form, and, and they believe with, with biblical support, they form congregational church governments. Um, so that authority for the church is not vested in the crown of England, but in every local assembly. And, and we would argue that's the way that it ought to be. And, some of them would argue that was the way those ought to be, but you have to understand that they were not fundamentally opposed to it not being that way. It, it wasn't a rebellion against uh, established church government. It was rebellion against Roman Catholic practices and theology um, that they opposed. <clears throat> um, and, and their history with the succession of kings of England and what had gone on and the king's choice of bishops had demonstrated to them that this was going to be a long time in coming. Um, they were not making ground, they were actually losing ground. And of course the separatists, which are the people who established the Pilgrim Colony, uh, Plymouth Colony, Plymouth Rock, <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, these are separatists, and they had long ago come to the conclusion that the Church of England should not be supported and that the national government was not a good thing. Um, and so, of course, when they came over in 1620, their, their charter was to land in Virginia, but they landed outside of Virginia. They wrote the Mayflower Compact, and they went on and, and formed then their own colony and their own colonial government. In 1662, right, so that's 1620, 42 years later, uh, King Charles establishes what is known as the Dominion of New England. And uh, Charles, you know, without going back through all the English history, uh, uh, you know, they'd had a civil war, they'd had a fight. The colonies in that time, you know, are kind of doing the things that they're doing, developing on their own. And he wants to bring them back under his thumb, and so he sends a governor over there and establishes what's known as the Dominion of New England. And it basically brings all of New England, and then most of the Mid-Atlantic colonies, and just places them directly under the crown. And so your colonial charters are no longer valid, no longer binding. The king said you can't be a colony. And it's a fascinating time in colonial history. Um, when Charles II dies in 1685, his son James II becomes the king. And things are going from bad to worse as far as the English are concerned. And so British Parliament actually goes to Holland to find what they believe is a viable Protestant king, even though he's not an Englishman, invite him to become the king of England. And in 1688, we have the Glorious Revolution, 1688-1689, um, in which a foreigner is made the king of England because he is a Protestant. He's a relative, but mostly he's a Protestant. And Charles II and James II were not trusted to be Protestants. They were always believed to be secretly Roman Catholic in their sympathies. So there's a lot that goes to that, but one of the, one of the things that comes out of William, this is his name, William, uh, William of Orange in the Glorious Revolution, one of the things that comes out of his reign is that he restores the colonial charters. Um, and the problem is, is that Plymouth Colony doesn't have a legitimate charter, and it never has had a legitimate charter, because it never settled in established territory. And so it is then incorporated into the Plymouth Bay, or the, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and it loses its identity that's in 1691. So anyway, right, so the Puritans are, of course, very religious people and very dedicated people, and very concerned about it. And here we got to do a little bit of wading into covenant theology, okay? you got to, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to try and use the auditorium this morning as my illustration, and, and so you've got to do your best to, to become covenant in your theological orientation for the next few minutes. Uh, the Puritans are very concerned about what they call the visible church. The visible church. Um, they are not Presbyterians. And they do not practice a Presbyterian form of government. We're not going to go down that road. But they are covenantal in nature. We kind of talked about this last week. Hosea 6-7 makes a reference. Your King James Bible uses the word man, but of course the word man is the word Adam. And so the argument is they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. And the argument is that that was Adam's covenant that he broke. And so all that we do is under a covenant. This is the nature of our relationship with God. Let me just read to you. Right? And, and by the way, if we were Presbyterian, <clears throat> and if we were truly a covenantal church, folks, I promise you 
that you would be almost as familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith as you are with your Bibles. Because it is something, and I'm not saying that they use it to replace biblical authority, but it is something that every dedicated covenantal church relies upon heavily to remind people of the continuity of its position. So this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25 on the church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So we are the visible church. We are the visible, the visible church. And here's what a Puritan believed. He believed that the judgment of God was falling or was going to fall upon England because of the corruption of Roman Catholicism that was being practiced in the church. And so it needed to be pure. So they were willing to leave everything that they knew and loved and was familiar to them. And all, by the way, all right, primitive by our standards, but all modern technology to come over here to the new world and build what they called the city on the hill. And as some of them refer to the entire journey, it was the errand into the wilderness, right? We, we deliberately, willingly, consciously know that we are abandoning civil society to go out and build a whole new society that will be a bright and shining light to the world that will enjoy God's blessing. Um, <clears throat> and this means, <clears throat> right, if we're going to do this, right, Westwood Heights Baptist Church, we are the visible church. And we are going to have God's blessing. And one of the things that England is not doing that it needs to be doing is dealing with sin in the congregation. And we are going to deal with sin in the congregation. And this, by the way, folks, is one of the ways that you get witch trials. Is when you take to yourself a willingness, if necessary, to put people in the noose for their sinfulness. Now, that's certainly what was happening. I mean, that was, that was part of Old Testament practice. I'm not objecting to the principle. I'm just saying, how did you get to the place where you have witch trials when you have a group of people who are committed to rooting out sin in all of its forms among the visible church? And the witch trials are an issue unto themselves. This was the desire. This is, folks, right? We're not big on dates, but we want to make note of this date. This is 1629. The witch trials come about 30 years later, but 1629, here we are. We're establishing our church, and we are going to be a testimony to the world. We are going to live righteously. We are going to let the Bible govern all that we do, both religiously and civilly. We are not going to tolerate sin publicly. We are going to address it and deal with it. We are going to have God's blessing. <clears throat> 30 years, 30 years later, <clears throat> which depending on how you view it is either a very short time or a very long time, but 30 years later, it was an abject failure. 30 years. It was a demonstrable, statistically establishable 
failure. It did not accomplish its purpose. And one of the ways that we know that is through the establishment of what is known historically as the halfway covenant. Actually, it was what it was called at the time, the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant was enacted in churches for the first time in 1662, 33 years. So again, if I could just, to, to, to maybe help, I find it helpful to me, if I, could, if I could bring it to Westwood Heights Baptist Church. I came here to be the pastor in 1984. Some of you were still were here. Some of you were here in 1984. And so here we are. We are the, we are the Puritans. <clears throat> we are the Puritans. And our goal <clears throat> is to build a city on a hill, a civilization that is a testament to the grace and mercy and kindness of God. And we will enjoy his bounties because of our righteous living and our intolerance of unrighteousness. This is what we will do, 1984. Now we're about 40 years into it, and beyond any shadow of a doubt, it is a failure. We have not succeeded. And we know that because of the halfway covenant. Now here's where you've got to put on your covenant theology hat. As part of this idea of covenants, God's covenants with people being transmitted. And we know this, folks, right? One of the places where we as a non-covenantal church would disagree with covenantalism is over how many covenants God has made. But when God makes a covenant, God gives something that is a testimony to participation in that covenant. So that when it comes to God's covenant about the flood. What is the symbol? The rainbow. When it comes to the covenant with Moses and the law, what is the symbol? The Sabbath day. The observation of the Sabbath is covenant celebration. And when it came to the covenant with Abraham, what is the symbol? Circumcision. Now, without going back over this passage, we dealt with this passage not terribly long ago. We could go into Colossians, and we could, I would argue, with a little bit of manipulation of the text, come to the conclusion that since the covenant with the Abrahamic covenant continues, that circumcision has been replaced with baptism. Well, you were circumcised on the eighth day, and so you're baptized as an infant. Now, let's go back to 1984, to those of us that were here in 1984, all right, when, when we united together at Westwood Heights Baptist Church in 1984, we had already been baptized as infants. And we had already experienced the saving grace of God in our lives. And we had already seen the visible elements of the saving grace of God in our adult lives. And we formed together to create Westwood Heights Baptist Church in 1984, a church that will live to the glory of God by our righteousness and our intolerance of sin. Then we begin to have children. And because we are covenant in our theology, we baptize those children. We do not believe that that baptism saves them, but we believe that that baptism is a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and we expect that they will come to know the Lord. Now, another part of our determination to have 
the blessing of God upon our civilization and society is that if you want any real or if you want any fundamental citizen privileges, you have to be a member of Westwood Heights Baptist Church. If you want to have anything to do with what goes on at the church, you have to be a member of Westwood Heights Baptist Church. But it isn't just that. If you want to hold any political office in our community, you have to be a member of Westwood Heights Baptist Church. And in order to be a member of Westwood Heights Baptist Church, you not only have to have been baptized as an infant, but you have to be able to stand up in front of the church and give a testimony of the way that God's grace has been made known to you and how you came to see your sinfulness and how God has saved you and what results that God's salvation has had in your visible life. And if you cannot do that, you cannot become a member. And if you cannot become a member, you cannot take communion. And you cannot vote in church business meetings. And you cannot hold office in our city. Now here we are in 1662. And our churches are filled with our children who have been baptized. But who have no ability to give a testimony as to their own personal conversion. And the own work of, the work of grace in their lives by God. And so they are not members. And then those children begin to grow. And they have children. And now where are we? Now where are we? Are these children part of the visible church or not? And it is into this quandary, this discussion, and again, folks, write to us, it's very simple. You know, look, this is... This is unfortunate, but this is, this is just a reality, right? And particularly after years of having a Christian school, we have seen, I don't know how many young people that have graduated from the academy, right, or who have come out of the youth program of Westwood Heights Baptist Church, have been raised in Westwood Heights Baptist Church. Some of those young people have gone on and continued to serve and follow the Lord. Some of them are still here. Some of them are the churches. And a number of them have walked out the door of Westwood Heights Baptist Church when they graduated from high school, and they never went back to another church. And for us, that's just kind of the way that it is. But one of the things, folks, that you have to remember is that church attendance is a legal requirement. You have to go to church. So you have to go to Westwood Heights Baptist Church, and you have to get baptized as an infant. And if you want to be a member, you have to give testimony of your conversion. And it has to be a real testimony of conversion. It's got to be the kind of life that I would look at it and go, you know what, I believe your conversion story. So after much discussion among the leaders of the congregational churches, because it's not really yet a denomination, it is a collection of churches that respect each other's independence and yet work together, they came up with the 1662 halfway covenant, which is that children of these unconverted members who had been baptized but never gave their own testimony of salvation, their children could receive baptism if 
their parents said they at least believed the Bible, and if there was no gross immorality visible in their life. So we will baptize your children. You may not take the Lord's Supper. You may not vote in church issues. You are halfway to being a member, and that's why it was called the halfway covenant. We will baptize you. We don't believe that saves you. Well, most of them didn't. So you're not a full member, but you're not a complete infidel. You're a half member. And so it is the halfway covenant. You cannot take communion. You cannot vote. You cannot be a community leader. But we will baptize your children as evidence of the covenant in the hope that God will work graciously in the child's life. Now, one of, the, one of the consequences of this is that this is ultimately seen as the end. Okay? Right? Part of being a Baptist. Part of being a Baptist, folks, hardcore part of being a Baptist is our insistence to the best of our ability to have only a regenerated church membership. We do not allow people to become members without a testimony of salvation. But the halfway covenant is viewed as the end of the Puritans' regenerated church membership. And this is a little bit down the road. We will not spend a lot of time on this, but New England goes through, in, 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 the, in the revolutionary days, in the, the post-revolutionary days, into the early 19th century, New England goes wholesale after Unitarianism, the rejection of the deity of Christ, and leading the charge in Unitarianism are the churches who embraced most fully the halfway covenant. Now, <clears throat> the halfway covenant is highly controversial in New England at its time. Not everybody accepted it. Not all of the churches did accept it. And it created a lot of division and a lot of conversations. In other words, is, is communion... Or baptism, are they sacraments and do they have any saving power? Why do we take them? Why do we observe them? And I mention all of that, folks, for two reasons. Number one, again, and I, part of me, my heart would go out to it, right? But we're, we're, we're reading and experiencing new waves of a renewed interest in Christian nationalism. Okay, let's remember the Puritans. 30 years. 30 years. But it was in that, it is within that framework that the first great awakening emerges. And one of its leading figures is a man who has firsthand experience in addressing with and living with the consequences of the halfway covenant, and that is Jonathan Edwards. So the First Great Awakening is a series. Again, it is a series of revivals, local revivals between about 1726 and 1776 that spanned the American colonies. It was called, because there was a simultaneous awakening in England called the Evangelical Awakening. So God was working both in the colonies and in England at that time. 
The three most notable personalities of that era are going to be Jonathan Edwards, or four notable personalities, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. Now, there are lots of people involved, folks, and you don't have to do a lot of reading about the Great Awakening to come across those names. But for our purposes, the, the big guns are going to be the Wesleys, um, <clears throat> Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards. The very first stirrings of the revival actually occur in New Jersey through the ministry of a man by the name of Theodorus Freulinghuysen. And he is very sympathetic to a group of people known as the Lutheran Pietists. These are people who are Lutheran in their theology, Lutheran in their orientation, but who are very much concerned about the personal devotion element of the religion. Not an institutional practice of religion, but a personal practice of religion. And Freulinghuysen emphasized personal conversion. Yeah, you're a Lutheran, but the church doesn't save you. You need to be personally converted, and you need to live a personally holy life. And this was what he did, and we, we, we see evidences of the Great Awakening break out in him. He was a Dutch Reformed pastor. That was his denominational affiliation. So 1726 is when it begins. Jonathan Edwards becomes the pastor of a church in Northampton, Massachusetts Bay Colony, because we're still in the colonial era. It was a church that his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, had pastored. And Solomon Stoddard was a well-known, widely respected, highly regarded pastor in that part of the country. But Stoddard began to teach that these people coming out of the halfway covenant, right? Your parents didn't make a profession of faith. They couldn't give testimony, at least convincingly to themselves, of the work of God in their lives. And yet they baptized their children under the halfway covenant. But they can't take the Lord's Supper. And Solomon Stoddard began to teach, but you need to take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper will save your soul. And so Solomon Stoddard began to teach that Communion was a saving ordinance. And then, I don't remember if Solomon Stoddard retires or passes away and his grandson Jonathan Edwards takes over and Jonathan Edwards says, we're putting an end to that. Communion saves nobody and if you can't bear testimony to your salvation, you can't have it. We're not giving it. In 1731, actually not in Northampton, but in Boston, he preached a sermon called God Glorified in the Work of Redemption by the Greatness of Man's Dependence Upon Him in the Whole of It. They liked long titles in those days. And I realize that this is always a delicate issue, folks, but what Jonathan Edwards was doing in that message, and you wouldn't have to look at the title very long on a piece of paper to figure it out, he was attacking Arminianism. Now, again, to us, the issues of Calvinism and Arminianism in the modern church in the 21st century are, for the most part, to most people, boiled down to one argument. And that is, will God save everybody or will God save only the elect? But the reality is, folks, is that the issue is much more complex than that. And it plays out in far greater issues than that.
Because if you recall, we talked about this last week, one of the great issues of Calvinism and Arminianism is the idea of unconditional election. Can you do anything to aid yourself spiritually? Can you do anything? If you diligently work to keep the law, will God be more inclined to elect you? What if you're just a good person? What if you're just nice to people? Is there anything that you can do? And folks, this will have major implications going down the road. The way we look at responsibility and and conduct. By 1733, a revival had begun in the church that Edwards pastored in Northampton. And his records show that of the 1,100 young people living in the town, 300 of them became members of the church in six months. And remember that in order to become a member, you have to give a fairly complicated or comprehensive, better word, testimony about how God saved you and what it looks like in your daily life. So about 25% of the people in Northampton in six months came to faith in Christ under Jonathan Edwards' ministry. And as the revival then spread, because it did begin to break out in other churches and other parts of the colonies, in 1737, Edwards wrote, and you can, of course, get these uh, online or you can get the books, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton. And one of the things that is involved in this, folks, if I can just kind of pause here, when we, when we talk, we're going to talk in our Sunday school class primarily about two revivals, the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. They have both been studied extensively historically. And in fact, some preachers have lamented that the First Great Awakening is of far greater interest to secular historians than it is to religious historians. Revivals are very complicated things. They just are. God is working. And in a revival, God is working. People are being saved and they are being renewed spiritually and there is an increased enthusiasm for the things of the Lord. But it is not simply God who is working, Satan is working. And even going back to the very first Great Awakening in the 1700s, these revivals are accompanied by things like people barking, hysterical laughing, people running around and shouting, people taking off their clothes and running around. All kinds of things that are known as enthusiasms. Right? This was, look, folks, this just happened not terribly long ago on the campus of some Christian college in the United States. And people were looking at it and going, people don't act like that in a revival, but they did in the first Great Awakening, and they did in the second Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards ultimately wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God that was specifically addressed to Describe what it would look like if God really worked as opposed to all kinds of the emotional insanity that was going on 
simultaneously. Now this wave of revival, right, to go back to Edwards. He, he, 1733, we got a revival breakout. 300 young people out of 1,100 make professions of faith of such conviction that they are welcomed into the membership of the church in Northampton. And by 1735, people are becoming so desperately concerned about the condition of their soul that some of them have actually committed suicide. And with that, the revival begins to wane a little bit. In 1741, Jonathan preached what is probably the most famous sermon in world history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Not that we really care, but Jonathan Edwards didn't so much preach it as read it. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant man, a godly man, who had a great aversion to anything, anything smacking of emotionalism in the church. So his tendency was to read his sermons like this. So that any consequence of what he said could in no way be attributed to his gestures, the intonation of his voice, his emotional appeal, that all belonged to God. That was Jonathan Edwards. That was the way Edwards thought. And I don't mean that critically. We are deeply indebted to Jonathan Edwards, beyond any shadow of a doubt, America's greatest theologian and one of America's greatest minds. Sinners in the hands of an angry God caught on, although what he said was absolutely nothing new to anybody in this congregation. They knew all that stuff, folks. They'd heard it before dozens of times. These were people who heard Calvinistic sermons and sermons of God's impending judgment every week. So it's not new or novel to them. By 1748, the revival had again waned. And Edwards finds himself now in conflict with the congregation over the halfway covenant. In 1733, 25% of the young people came into the church as members in six months. Between 1744 and 1748, no one, not one person, presented themselves for membership. And when, towards the end of 1748, someone did come in and request membership, Edwards submitted him to what to him was the standard way of addressing members, a thorough interrogation of his conversion experience, and insistence upon his giving a credible testimony of his salvation. And the congregation not only rejected Edwards' plan, they voted him out of the membership. And Jonathan Edwards was fired by his congregation 10 years after the outbreak of the Great Awakening there. He went off and ministered to the Indians for a while. He became the president of, of, of <clears throat> what is now Princeton, but was the College of New Jersey. And in 1758, after receiving a smallpox inoculation, he died of smallpox. So that's Jonathan Edwards. Second major figure, George Whitfield. He is by far the most well-known evangelist. Jonathan Edwards, good guy, local pastor. George Whitfield was an evangelist and he traveled the eastern seaboard. He belonged to the Church of England. If you see pictures of him, which are not photographs, but paintings and cuttings, he's always wearing a religious robe. He was a priest in the Church of England. Came to Georgia down the south, 1738, with a desire to start an orphanage, began to preach open-air meetings, which proved popular. Ben Franklin was one of his greatest fans and admirers, and we know much about George Whitfield's public ministry from the writings of Ben Franklin, who absolutely out and out 
vocally, visibly, beyond any shadow of a doubt, rejected the deity of Jesus Christ and died a lost man. But he loved George Whitfield and he loved to hear him preach. And Bedward, or Franklin had a great scientific mind and he would work to do calculations of how many thousands of people could hear George Whitfield preach and the number was tens of thousands. And he would preach these great meetings and people would come to hear him. There is one record where the congregation's size was estimated to be 80,000 people. Folks, that's a football game. I mean, that's a, that's a Memorial Stadium. With no mechanical advantage. No mechanical amplification. He really liked the Wesleys. He knew the Wesleys, but they were seriously divided over the issue of Calvinism and Arminian, Arminianism. Whitfield was a diehard Calvinist. The Wesleys were diehard Arminians and believed in Christian perfectionism. And so, although they liked each other, they did not travel or work together. But through Whitfield's work, because he traveled the, the colonies, the, what is now to us the eastern seaboard, right? He, the revival had impact on all three regions of the country. I, I started out by talking about you had... Church of England colonies. You had colonies that had no established church. You had the established churches of New England. And through his ministry and the outbreak of the revival, we begin to see the decline of congregationalism in New England. And we begin to see increased religious pluralism in the middle colonies. And we begin to see the Church of England losing its influence in the southern colonies. The revival is very controversial even in local communities. And those who supported it tended to be known as new lights, and those who opposed it tended to be known as old lights. And there's much to it. And some of this will come out. We'll talk about it, not this morning, but as we go. But the controversy split churches, and even for a while, it split the government of Connecticut. Two governments. One of old lights, one of new lights. So what are the legacy? All right, let me just, in the, in the last couple of minutes that I'm going to take here, let me talk about some of the legacies of this Great Awakening. Of course, the greatest is spiritual, folks. There are estimates that somewhere between 10 to 15% of New England, or the colonies, made a profession of faith in that 50-year span. There were 2.5 million Americans at the outbreak of the War for Independence. There are estimates that 250,000 to 400,000 of those Americans made clear and distinct professions of faith in that period of time. The greatest impact of any revival is going to be the number of people who come to faith in Christ over it. But again, folks, nobody comes to faith in Christ in a vacuum. Nobody just comes to faith in Christ and then their life is no different. And a group of people don't come to faith in Christ and the world in which they live is no different. New colleges are formed. Here are, some of the, here are some of the outflows of this spiritual awakening. The College of New Jersey, Dartmouth, Rhode Island College, which is today known as Brown University. Lots of the Ivy League colleges, folks, go back to the Great Awakening. And by the way, the impetus for that is this. Where did America get many of its ministers prior to the Great Awakening? England. 
What is the last thing America now wants? English ministers. What are we going to do? Train our own. We're going to train our own. Queens College, which is now Rutgers, <clears throat> right? It has political ramifications because it is a revival of religion that spreads throughout the colonies, certainly heaviest in New England, but all the way down. It contributes to the American identity. We now really begin to think of ourselves as Americans, not just Englishmen living on American soil. It unites us in a way, it is a, this, this was probably close to 20 years ago now. We should get, the college is gone, we should go to conference over Pennsylvania, and over in, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area. And several of us, one day we got up, we wanted to go to Valley Forge. And so we get up, and you know, we, we're good Hiles guys, we're good at ditching sessions. So we ditch the session and we, we go over to Valley Forge, you know, and <clears throat> we look around. We're in the gift shop. We're looking at some books, talking about books on the Great Awakening. And now he may have been a believer, but one of the, one of the um, park rangers that was working in the gift shop said, he said, man, that Great Awakening had a huge impact on the American Revolution. And it did. It created a spirit of in political independence that to this day, by the way, folks, is still raging, but had its roots in the First Great Awakening. And then it had societal impacts, okay? The first great awakening really begins to give traction to two groups who are going to dominate the country, particularly as it spreads into the West, and those are the Baptists and the Methodists. These are not the birthplace of those denominations, but these denominations really begin to explode. And as we will see, these two denominations, folks, are in... in several significant ways diametrically opposed to the established churches and to the established way of doing things. Baptists have as kind of their DNA, if I can use that modern word, this notion that we don't answer to people and we don't need your institutions to make us godly people. That that, that goes right back to the first great awakening in America. Religion is increasingly individualized as opposed to being institutional in nature. And the emphasis now will become more than ever upon individual conversion, individual responsibility, but also individual ideas and thinking. So that we're going to see increasingly an established minister stand up in the pulpit and go, you know, basically from the position of, I've been through all the training, I've been through all the schools, I've learned all the languages, I've taken the, follow, the acceptable path, and I'm a man of God, and here's what I say, and the people in the pew go, yeah, we don't think so. That comes out of the Great Awakening. People didn't do that before the Great Awakening. People feel increasing liberty and freedom to criticize ministers and denominations. And we will see this is something that follows almost immediately on the heels of the establishment of the country. We begin the process of disestablishing every government. State, state churches begin to go away. And this is all attributed to the beginnings of the first great awakening. It will, there, there will be, not in the not-too-distant future, a second great awakening that will really ramp that up, but it all is part of it.
And then, and I'm just going to take, this is what I'm going to deal with next Sunday because I wanted to make mention of it and as I began to look at it, I realized that it needed a lot more attention. Music. There's a whole body of music that we have in our books that if I said to you pick a radical song, you would never pick it, but it was radical in 1770. And I don't mean contemporary, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, to push us in the contemporary mold. I'm just saying, there is a whole body of music that we love that came out of the Great Awakening era. And so I, I want to give some time to that and talk about some of the people who are involved in that. So again, folks, this is a very brief overview of the Great Awakening, but it was huge in its significance in American history and particularly American religious history. Okay, we'll be back.